0: We've had a wonderful, encouraging, uplifting worship service this morning. I love the songs. I stand in awe of you. What an incredible, holy, awesome God we serve. He is our everything. He is our life, Colossians 3 and verse 1. And so, the question I would beg for us to consider this morning is why is it that we struggle so with evangelism? Why is it that we find it difficult at times, and we all do, why is it we find it difficult at times telling everybody around us about the good news of Jesus Christ our Lord? Why why is that such a struggle? Why is it that the thought of knocking on somebody's door Spreading the word. Sends some of us right into panic mode for many reasons. And there are some real concerns. There are some real and legitimate reasons why these things happen. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you five of the biggest ones as far as I'm concerned. Number one, it gets us out of our own comfort zones, our own contentment zones. If that's not something that we're used to doing, it's 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 something new and, and new scares us and so that's number one. Number two, I know a big fear for a lot of people is is that we're afraid that we're not gonna have the right words to say. We're afraid that we don't know what to say. And that's a big reason. A third reason is is that a lot of us may have feelings about our own inadequacies. Maybe we've tried before and failed, and so we we have desperate feelings about our own inadequacies. Number four, sometimes we wonder, we doubt if people are even going to listen to us. Maybe based on past experience, maybe not, but we wonder if they're even going to listen. I think number five, we're afraid of their reaction. If we do speak up, if we do speak out for God, if we do, bring it right to their attention. We're afraid of their reaction. And you know the irony of that is that we pretty pretty much see all five of those very same things, all five of them, reflected in the life of Moses. All five of them. You see question I would ask us is, where would we be? Where would you and I be? If indeed Moses hadn't, with the help of God, overcome those five obstacles to become the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to consider this morning, by opening our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would, I want us to consider those five things in the story of Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, just like with us. Moses' mission actually began, even though he didn't know it, actually began early on when Moses chose to follow God. He chose to follow God instead of pursuing a life of sin and and self indulgence and worldliness. In Hebrews 11, we see this beginning in verse 24. It says, By faith, Moses when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses probably didn't have a whole lot of idea what his mission was going to be when he chose to follow God. And, and a lot of us, we, we make the same choice that we just read about Moses making in Hebrews 11 when we chose not to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, but we chose to follow God. We chose to take on that reproach, as it were. So in the process, as we know, Moses killed an Egyptian. It's interesting. Moses was standing up for his own people on a small scale. And so he killed an Egyptian. And then I want us to begin tracing some of the events of his life from Exodus 2. Exodus 2, verses 15 through 22. I want you to look at what happened here. Exodus 2, 15 through 22, after Moses kills the Egyptian. In verse 15, it says, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, He sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. Watch this. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. I want you to think about that. Moses is in Median because he's killed an Egyptian. He stood up for one of his own people. Small scale. And now the scale's a little bit bigger. Moses is coming to the rescue and standing up for those who need help. Shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us, delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Moses is helping on a small scale. He's delivering on a small scale. He's doing it automatically. It's the right thing to do. Have you ever spoken to anybody at all about the fact that you're a Christian? Have you ever come to the rescue of somebody who needed help because it's the right thing to do because you're a Christian? Moses, on a small scale, was doing that already. Verse 23, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. People were in pain. They were suffering. God knew it. God wanted to do something about it. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the back of the desert, came to horror of the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Look down in verse 7. Lord speaks to him. And I want you to see what the Lord says out of this burning bush. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. God said, I know their hurting. I know that that in this case it was his people, those who were already his people, but but God saw their pain and he saw their suffering and he wanted to do something about it. His will was not for them to continue to have to endure that. Look what else he says in verses 8 and 9. So I have come down to deliver. Hmm. We've seen that word before. Chapter 2 and verse 19. Moses had delivered daughters of the priests of Midian, and now God come down. God comes down in verse 8 and says, I have come down to deliver my people out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. See, it's beginning to develop. Time is passing. Within the passage of time, over the process of time, Moses starts out small. Then he delivers these daughters of Midian. And and then God comes to him and he says, hey, I have heard the cry. I have seen the bondage. I want to deliver my people, all those people. Moses will want to do what you've done on a smaller scale. Only I want to do it on a much grander scale. And Moses, guess what? I'm going to use you to do that. <clears throat> Look down with me. In chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. God says, come now, therefore, I'll oh, send you, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses, guess what? You're the man I have chosen to do this. You've already... If I may use the phraseology, you've been faithful in a few things. You've done this on a very small scale. Now I'm going to increase the scale size. I'm going to send you. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses was great with things up to this point. God says, I, I've chosen you. Moses, wait a minute. Whoa, God, you got the wrong fella. I don't know who you're looking for, but take me, if I may paraphrase. I can't do this. Send somebody else. It's got to be a bad case of mistaken identity, God. In effect, that's Moses' response. I can't do it. I can't. So God, in His great patience, says, I'll be with you. I will, verse 12, certainly be with you. I will, when God says, I will do something, is that pretty much the end of it? When God says, I will certainly do it, I'm not fighting with Him. Kind of reminiscent to me of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28, 18-20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Doesn't it sound a lot like this? God told Moses, he says, you're the man, you're going. Moses says, you got the wrong fellow. God says, I will certainly go with you. Just like in the New Testament. He tells us to go and to teach, and he says, I'll be with you. Well, in verses 13 and following, Moses comes up with another desperate excuse to try to escape doing what God had commanded. Apparently, according to Moses at this point, God had no idea who he was supposed to be choosing, but it certainly wasn't Moses. In verses 21 and 2, as we look down here, God promises that he will reward the efforts of everybody involved, but obviously he wouldn't if Moses didn't go. Look in verses 21 and 2 of chapter 3. God said, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go. You shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. You'll put them on your sons and daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." God says, not only am I sending you, Moses, but when my folks leave slavery, they will be blessed incredibly. Blessed incredibly. Sounds like a pretty good setup, doesn't it? with him, everything's going to be fine. And Moses answered chapter 4 and verse 1 and said, great, let's go. No, that's not what Moses said. But Moses answered with this. Yeah, but what if? Yeah, but what if? Or as the scripture says, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Moses' response, yeah, but what if? But what if they don't believe. It. What if they say the Lord has not appeared to them? It would be like us today saying, but what if I get to a door, or what if I go to talk to somebody and they ask me a question I can't answer, but what if? What if they're already members of a religious group and, and, and they've read some bad stuff on the internet? Do, do you read bad stuff on the internet about anything, even Jesus himself, but anyway. But what if this, and what if that, and what if something else? Reminds me of the argument people are always using when you get them to that point where they can read that baptism now saved you in 1 Peter 3.21, and if they don't want to believe it, they will come up with every excuse in the book and write whole new volumes about, yeah, but what if? What if I'm on the way to ba- the baptistry and alien invaders come down and take me back to their planet and there's no water? They do that sort of thing. My response is, when you see until you see them coming, let's deal with reality. <laughs> But Moses, like we, when God tells us to go, says, what if they don't listen? Suppose they say this. What if they do that, and on, and on, and on. And you know know what the Lord does next? This is so incredibly godly. (laughs) Think about what God does right after this what-if scenario. In the next few verses, in verses 2 through 9 in particular, God in his goodness and mercy prepares Moses and provides him with every single thing, everything that he needs to completely succeed in the mission. Don't miss that, verses 2 through 9. Everything he needs to succeed in the mission, God gives him. God outfits him, gives him the, you can read verses 2 through 9. God has got him locked in. There's nothing he's lacking to succeed in this mission? Nothing. Noah's response is, thank you, God, for out. No. Verse 10. And Moses said to the Lord, even after being totally outfitted, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and slow of time. Lord, I, I'm not quick-witted on my feet. I can't think of, I can't answer questions that fast. You ever heard that? Anybody here ever heard that? I I I get all choked up. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind? If not I the Lord? Now therefore, go. This is the key word in this, in this story, go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you will say. Not only will I be with you, Moses, I'll be with your mouth. And I'll give you all the words you need to say. So once God took that excuse away, Moses said, great. Now, Moses said in verse 13, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whoever else you may send. Have you ever tried to get somebody to do something, they come up with an excuse, and as soon as you shoot it down, they turn to the next one. And as soon as you shoot it down, you turn to the next one. That's what Moses is doing. God's taking care of the whole mouth thing. God's, God's got that. God says, Look, I'll set you up. I'll outfit you. We got this. Moses finally reverts back to, Lord, you got the wrong man. You need to send somebody. It ain't my job. It ain't me. Don't miss the next verse. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Do you blame God? Could you really blame God? God gave him everything. God said, I'll take care of this, you go. You're my chosen one. Uh, Lord, you got the wrong man. Well, I'll give you this and this and this. Yeah, but I can't do that. Well, here, here's this. This will take care of that. (coughs) And he finally reverts, when he runs out of excuses, he finally gets back to, Lord, not me. And God's angry with him, and he said, Is not Aaron, the Levite, your brother? I know he can speak. Well, look, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you should do. God has got it covered. Doesn't he? He sure does. So in verse 18, I cannot cannot preach this as a man who says he knows, because I don't know. But if I'm Moses... In verse 18, when I go back to Jethro, my father-in-law, and say, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive, if I'm Moses, I'm hoping deep down in my heart that here's my out, and then he says, nope, you can't go. Um, now, God, God had that one covered too. Jethro said to Moses, go. <laughs> Oops, there goes that. Even that excuse isn't working. Moses having a bad day here, or so it would seem. So then, verse 19, the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go, return to Egypt. And so we read on down through verse 20, and we, we know that he does that. This word, go, so reminiscent to me. When God says in the New Testament to you and me, go into all the world, Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Preach the gospel to all creation. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who is disbelieved shall be condemned. Go into all the world. Go. Go, 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 go. First word in gospel, by the way, is go. Now, we need to understand that just as Moses had chosen God in the beginning, God had chosen him now, later on, for a mission. And here's the thing. God had educated Moses, he had seasoned him, he had trained him, he had educated him, he had prepared him, he had invested in him, he had outfitted Moses for this mission over the course of his entire lifetime, whether Moses knew it or not, God, through training and education, and supplying his needs, and helping him to get insight whether Moses recognized it or not, God had been preparing him all, this, all his life for this mission. Consider this. Moses was raised in Pharaoh's palace, and yet, and yet, he was taught at the feet of his mother Jochebed about his Jewish religious history and heritage. God had been training him. If it hadn't been for his mother and the whole thing that God had set up early on with the Nile and, and all of this and Pharaoh's daughter, then he wouldn't have been educated by her, by Jochebed under some circumstances, and yet by growing up in Pharaoh's palace, he knew his way around. He understood the lay of the land. He had adoptive family there, shall we say. So he had an inn with Pharaoh, but he knew his Jewish roots. Consider this, when Moses goes off, kills the Egyptian, goes off, and and the events of his life unfold while he's he's, uh, herding sheep, he had slowly become trained in how to find water and shelter in, in vast expanses of uninhabited land. Would that come in handy later on, knowing how to find water to feed sheep? Would that come in handy while he's leading the people through the desert? Oh, that come in real, real handy. God had been training him. God had been giving him all the tools he needed for success, even when he didn't know it. You know, I can't help but think of the old movie, Remember, I'm gonna date myself here, but it's okay. Remember the first, the original, old movie, The Karate Kid? Remember Mr. Miyagi has got the, the kid there washing his car? Days of you know just waxing the car. And the kid's getting frustrated and fed up with it. Finally, when they get ready for the whole training thing, you know Miyagi goes throw a punch and says, right, the guy comes up like this, and he didn't realize he was being trained. Moses, I don't think, realized he was being trained for this very mission all of his life. And now he's armed with the very power and purpose and presence of God. From the staff in his hand to the words that would come out of his mouth, he is completely and uniquely trained and outfitted by God himself for the mission that God has had in mind all along. What does he say? God, you got to send somebody else. And God's angry in verse 14. But I think there's a parallel there. I think there's a parallel with Moses and his God-given mission to go with our God-given mission to go into all the world to teach the gospel. You see, our going is also decided early on when we decide to choose God over everybody else. When we become a Christian, when we choose to follow God, we were saved to serve, Titus 2, 11 through 14. So when we chose to follow God, that was the beginning of our mission training, just like Moses. Just like Moses adopted grandfather Pharaoh, many, maybe even in our own family, are not always happy with the resulting actions and the repercussions of our decision, Matthew 10, 34 through 38. Another parallel, though, with Moses for us is that over the passage of time, over the process of time, though, listen, brethren, we are continually being trained. We are continually gaining knowledge. We are continually being pruned. The Bible tells us in John 15 that all of God's children are pruned by God, that they would be even more fruitful. We are being trained and pruned and prepared and empowered, whether we know it or not, just like Moses was. Every Bible class, Every sermon, every time you spend time in your Bible by yourself, every lectureship, everything that we go to is a training. It is a training to draw us closer to God, to bring us more in line with the mission that He is slowly preparing us for. Every struggle, all of it, contribute to our training. And there's a bunch of scriptures, Romans 5, 3-4, Hebrews 12:5 5-13, James 1, 2, and 3, 1 Peter 1, there's a lot of passages that talk about our training. And here's where it comes down to what I want to get to. Does God know the pain and suffering of the lost souls around us? Does he? he sure does. Does he know what awaits those lost souls for eternity if they don't become his? He sure does. That's why Jesus came. He knows. He knows the pain and suffering of the people that are enslaved to sin all around us, the sin and the broken lives and what sin is causing. And God wants to deliver them from their oppression and their slavery to It is God's will that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, 2 Peter 3, 9. And did you know that just like he did with Moses, God has outfitted you and I, if you're a Christian, You've been a Christian more than six months. God has supplied us with every single thing that we need to perform the mission. He's given us everything we need to stand perfect before him. 2nd Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Word of God is suitable for proof, doctrine, correction, training and righteousness that the man of God may be perfect. We have what we need to make us perfect. Look with me in 2nd Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry, 2nd Peter chapter 1. Second Peter, chapter 1. God's outfitted us completely. Everything <laughs> we need to carry out the mission, everything. Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Look what it says. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Between that and 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we have everything we need to perfectly carry out the mission, to perfectly stand before God. God has left us lacking in nothing when it comes to preparation, nothing. (coughs) We have the promise of God's presence, just like Moses did. We have the promise of God's presence as we go forth to save souls. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we've already talked about that. And did you know, did you know, we have the power overcome every single argument and obstacle that is raised against God's Word. Did you know that? There is no argument that can be raised that's going to hold any water against what we have. I'll prove it to you. Turn to me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 10. It's right there. We've been totally outfitted with the Word of God. We've got everything we need, perfectly outfitted for the task at hand. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I love these three verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look at verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We have the very same infinitely powerful weapon that Jesus used in his temptations in Matthew 4 when he said, it is written, nothing can stand against the word of God, nothing. We've been given that empowering thing. We have been totally outfitted not only that, but the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 7, and 8 God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. And so knowing all of that, How do we respond? How do we typically respond when it's time to get out there and start evangelizing or knocking doors? How do some of us sometimes respond? Who am I that I should go? God, you got the wrong man. That's somebody else's job. I can't do this. What if they say this or that? Think about it. You know, I'm going to completely change gears on you. Hold everything you've just heard. I love old sailing ships. told you I was going to change gears. That's about as far a change as you probably get. I love old sailing ships. Old Ironsides, the USS Constitution in Boston Harbor. Beautiful old ship. Visited that as a child. The Mayflower II replica at Plymouth Rock in Plymouth Harbor replica of the ship the pilgrims come over on and I've been to Old mystic Seaport in Connecticut matter of fact that's where both the tie and the tie tack I've got on came from is old mystic seaport in Mystic Connecticut tall ships are there it's if you love old ships it's it's wonderful and we've been there and as a kid I used to read stories and books a series of books on these old ships and I I loved reading about and picturing these old sailing vessels on the high seas and, and their rigging and their outfitting and how they'd pull into port and they would they would get supplied in the safety of a harbor and then they'd launch out again. The crack of the sailcloth and, and the foamer, to me, I mean, some kids like planes, some kids like trains, would it's ships, old ships, old wooden men-of-war ships. The life was intense on those ships. They had to go out and fight against the enemy every day and... That foam coming off the bow, and the smell of the salt air, and those ships crashing up. And it just to me, it was just a thing of beauty with all those sails billowing. In keeping with our theme, our ship theme of this morning's lesson, what I've been talking about with Moses and us, in light of that, I'd like to share a slogan involving a ship with you. A ship in harbor is safe. a ship in harbor is safe. Just like Moses in Midian was safe before the burning bush. Just like the apostles in Jerusalem seemed to feel somewhat safe when they stayed there in the book of Acts. But you know something? ship in harbor is safe. But that's not what ships are built for. That's the rest of the slogan. A ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what they built ships for were to sit in harbor in safety. Not at all. Ships were no more built to sit in harbor than how God had built and prepared Moses. How he had supplied and, and taught and outfitted the apostles. you know what else? God did not salvage and purchase and supply and prepare and provide and provision and outfit us to sit safely in harbor either. Christians may be safe in harbor, but that's not what we were built for. That's not what we were bought for. We were not bought to simply sit in harbor and stay safe, away from the fight, away from the elements, away from the enemy. That's not at all what we were bought for. Ships, like Christians, are built, purchased, stocked, and supplied to set sail and achieve a mission. Christians, like ships, are built over the process of time to weather the storms. Christians, like ships, are meant to weather those storms, no matter how fierce, no matter how lonely, no matter how scary. Christians are prepared, through the word of God, sometimes to fight when necessary, to fight false doctrine, to fight those things. To destroy people. We're built to get out there on the open sea where the battle is and to fight against those things. We've been outfitted and rigged and given everything we need to be successful to fight when necessary. To perform search and rescue and to provide a pull to safety at times. There are people whose lives are damaged in smoke and, and coming apart and they're sinking in a sea of sin. And we have been given the tools that we need to perform search and rescue, and provide a pull to safety. We've been given all of those things. God has prepared us for those things. If all of us do not fight the good fight together as one, the whole mission could be lost. Lives could and will be lost. Evil and danger abound, that's a pirate ship. Yeah, yeah, we're going to take some snags and some lightning. Yeah, it's going to happen. Sometimes the going gets really tough. Sometimes there's some storms out there. Yeah, that's true. But that ship still wasn't built to stay in harbor. Ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what a ship is built for. Christians who stay quiet remain under the radar and just stay Christians in church. That's not what we were built for. Sometimes the going gets tough. But perfect peace and victory are promised to those who obey and endure to eternal life. As I reflect on those things, I am reminded of something that I heard a long time ago. I'm reminded of the phrase that I heard that the church is not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. And apparently there are some Christians in the early church that forgot that. Turn to me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to just look real quickly at verses 18 through 20. 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. It says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Please notice, there's a war going on. Having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. One way I would illustrate this to go with this morning's sermon is this. They had forgotten that it was a battleship. They had forgotten there's a war going on concerning the faith. And so what have they done? Because they took it lightly, they suffered shipwreck of their faith. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says. Warfare means that we're on a battleship, not a cruise ship. There's a battle to be fought. A number of years ago, probably around a decade ago, I watched a special on the Travel Channel on cruise ships. I don't know why. But I did, probably because I like ships. On board this cruise ship, there were several gourmet restaurants, there were casinos, there were dance clubs, there were all manner. there was like several swimming pools. Have you seen some of those advertised on TV with a big water slide that goes out over the ocean and comes back? I mean, those things are incredible. They had, you know, the restaurants, by the way, I saw some of the food. It was too pretty to eat. It's like a picture you'd see in a doctor's office. That food wasn't for eating. It was way too pretty to eat. Game rooms, casinos, like I said. One of them had a garden suite. This was 10 years ago. On the back of the ship, they had a garden suite. And if you had a lot of money, you could rent this garden. It had like little trees and little grass. It's on the back end of one of these cruise ships. 10 years ago, it was $27,000 a week to rent. You Got an extra 30 grand laying around. You could rent this room for a week. Lavish, incredible. If anything was not exactly what you wanted, you could complain to the captain and crew and they would fix it. They were all there for only one reason, and that is to serve and fulfill your every want, need, wish, women desire to make you absolutely as comfortable as you could be. That's what the crew was there for. However, if any of you have ever been in the Navy, you understand that is not, or the military, you understand that is not the purpose of you going in the military, for somebody to take care of your every wish, will, women, desire. When you were on a ship and you were in the Navy, you understand that it was not a cruise ship. You understand that when you signed on, it instantly became about doing the captain's will and not yours. Whatever the captain commands, it is your responsibility to comply with it. doesn't matter if you're on that. How many of you have served in the military? Raise your hands. Thank you, absolutely. But you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Your commanding officer didn't care if you were comfortable or not. That really wasn't the issue. It didn't matter if you were uncomfortable, unconventional. His orders were uncomfortable, unconventional, or inconvenient. The captain's orders were to be carried out immediately, completely, and without question or compromise, and that's the reason you were there. Brethren, Church Christ not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. Jesus Christ is the captain of our salvation. And we're on a mission. We are hard at work in the rough storm-tossed enemy waters, John 14, verse 30. We are carrying out a spiritual search and rescue mission for lost souls <coughs> adrift in the sea of sin, Luke 15, 1 through 10. That's our mission. That's our job. That's what we're about. That's what we, When we signed on with God, that became part of our mission. Some people have sadly suffered a shipwreck of their faith because they chose to believe the church was a cruise ship, which was there simply to make them comfortable, instead of a battleship in which they were the crew members sent to fight for and rescue the souls of others. In, Hebrews, in Ephesians 4, 14 through 16, it talks about being blown about by every wind of doctrine and how, brethren, we can't be blown about by every wind and doctrine. Rough seas don't matter. How rough the waves get as they're wind-driven. It does say in verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 4 that every single one of us in the crew of the Lord's ship need to do our part. Turn there. I know you're familiar with this, but I, I need you to turn to Ephesians 4 for just one verse. Look what it says. It talks about Christ the head in verse 15. Verse 16, for whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What does that mean? It means that every able-bodied crew member needs to be all hands on deck. That's what it means. Every last one, the whole crew, everybody is important, everybody is needed, everyone has to do their part. That's what it means. Brethren. We have received our orders. We are going to go into all the world, and we're given the opportunity, one of the things, to do that. One of the submissions of the overall mission on October the 5th, we're going to launch out for some spiritual search and rescue in this, in this neighborhood. That's what we're doing. We've, we're ready to go. We're launching this new phase of the mission, Saturday morning, October 5th. We need all hands on deck and ready for this spiritual search and rescue mission. Every member is important. If I may twist up what was in the bulletin and on the announcement slide just a little this morning to fit this sermon as we close. If you can walk and knock and talk, then don't plan to stay on the dock. Come October the 5th. When we set sail and launch out, into the deep. The battle is on. As the song says, there are souls to rescue, there are souls to save. We need to bring people on board with the Lord before they drown in a sea of sin. We were saved to serve, so let us now serve to save others. If you're here this morning, you've never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there's one other boat I want to tell you about real quick. We would hate for you to miss the boat if you've never been baptized into Christ. In Noah's day, they had to be in the ark in order to be saved. And in the New Testament, 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 tells us that we must be baptized, we must be in Christ. Like they had to be in the ark in Noah's day when Noah was preaching as a preacher of righteousness and many didn't listen and only the ones in the ark were saved by water. It's the same thing today. We need to be baptized into Christ. And as we're baptized into Christ, it is the water that separates us from the filth of the world as well, just like water separated them physically from the filth of the world. When we are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, Acts chapter two, he adds us to the Lord's church. Question is, you couldn't be saved outside the ark, only in the ark. Today you can't be saved outside of Christ, you gotta be in Christ. The Christ body is called his church. When you are baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, you're baptized into Christ, the Lord God adds you to his church, his body. Are you in Christ? Or if you're here this morning, you've already been baptized, and you are safe, and you are in Christ. Don't take your safety for granted. There's still a mission to do, and if you would like the prayers of the church to be stronger when it comes to reaching out, when it comes to being stronger, to speaking up, when it comes to being more like Moses turned out than when he tried to turn away, if there's anything we can do to help you, come right now. We're going to stand and sing and encourage you. We want you to come to the front. We'll help in any way that we possibly can.